Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, the best of Risk number 19, you'll hear Alexandra Anagnostopoulos. Me and my friend, me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my friend. That and more, but before that, I just want to say, did you know we have, I think it's 20 people at this point, who do one thing or another for Risk or The Story Studio. Our business and administrative folks, our audio editors, our story coaches, our faculty members, our website and social media folks. There are a few of us even who are full-time. Now, everyone at Risk and The Story Studio has had to take pay cuts this year. On top of our efforts to reduce the hours that a lot of the folks who work for us are working. And then us full-timers are taking on more hours, but also pay cuts. One thing that just keeps being said in conversation after conversation among us on the staff is that we just love and believe in this show so much that we just want to do anything necessary to keep the show running. Our last assessment is that we can continue to break even for another eight months or so. But we're placing our intention on not just surviving this economic crisis, but flourishing and thriving and becoming stronger because of this, you know? Not to see this as the possible end of risk, but to see this as the greatest challenge we're making it through so that we can expand the show in the future. 
That's why it means so, so very much to us when Risk fans become members of ours at patreon.com slash risk. I've said it many times, you already know, there's a lot of bonus content over there. There's a lot of perks to becoming a member at patreon.com slash risk. There's also the opportunity of giving us a one-time donation at paypal.me slash risk show. So we are so very deeply grateful that people have been signing up or increasing the amount that they're giving over there on Patreon, but know that we need that trend to continue for the greater goal of risk itself to continue. We want to thank everyone so very much for being a community that keeps this show running. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Manu DeBango behind me now. And this is the best of Risk number 19. Every six or seven months, we do a little roundup of some of our very favorite stories from the show recently. We've started polling our audience to find out what your favorite stories were. And this time around, we decided to release two of them. We, we came out with the Best of Risk 18 on Tuesday of this week, and now it's Thursday, and we're releasing the Best of Risk 19 because everyone agreed. I mean, in the polling, a lot of people thought that nine stories in particular were clearly favorites. So today, we're going to hear the latter five of those. I'll tell you, yesterday I did street marshalling again for a protest. It was the Get Your Knees Off Our Necks protest in uh, Brooklyn and Queens and Manhattan that was in solidarity with the March on Washington commemorating the 1963 March on Washington where MLK made his famous I Have a Dream speech. And once again, I am so incredibly inspired. There is just something so empowering, so moving, so, I don't know, psychologically crucial about standing up in solidarity and making your voice heard. Of course, there are so many ways to do that. You know, getting out the vote, uh, volunteering to organize in your own community in this or that way, phone banking, uh, making uh, donations to causes. But marching in the streets is absolutely essential. This is and will continue to be one of the biggest social justice movements in the history of this country. It will continue to be absolutely essential, even if Joe Biden wins in uh, November. But yeah, I, I really believe that it, it is not hyperbole to say that, of course, we all understand 
we're worried about our families, we're busy with our jobs, we're, you know, worried about our personal social lives and all that stuff that is normally occupying all of our minds. But in our lifetimes, we have never been in a situation where it was more critical that we be putting time aside every day to be doing something to help turn things around in this country. Every time that I've participated in one of these protests, especially the two times I've done the street marshalling, a series of excuses has popped up in my head beforehand, thinking, oh, am I too old for this? Or do I really have time for this? Or I'm kind of nervous about this. And every time I've been absolutely invigorated and inspired and thrilled. It, it has been kind of a cathartic and therapeutic thing for me to be a part of it. So remember that taking action for solidarity is a way of improving our lives on many levels. Okay, let's get to these fantastic stories today. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Monica Novak. Before that, a little something from Risk listener Alexandra Anagnostopoulos. But before that, a story by Risk Story Coach and Story Studio faculty member Brad Lawrence. This is a story that Brad shared with us when Risk was last in Washington, D.C. You can find Brad on Twitter at BradLaw77. And here he is now with a story we call Joining the Resistance. It is the 90s. Uh, I am 25 years old. I've been living in D.C. for about a year, and I'm working at a bookstore. And I walk into the shop one day, and uh, my friend Mike is behind the counter, and he has this look on his face, expression of, like, stunned glee. And he says, guess what? James quit. He told Evan to fuck off, and then he just walked out. And I was like, James quit? And he was like, or he was fired, immediately after he said that, Evan was like, fuck you, get the fuck out, you're fired. So it was kind of six of one or half dozen of the other. And I'm not surprised that Evan wanted to fire James because Evan has always hated James from day one. But the fuck off from James, that is a surprise. That is more energy than I would have ever ascribed to that kid because James has always seemed to me to be sort of like the living embodiment of playing Morrissey at half speed, all right? Because uh, every time I walk into the book, and I don't really know James at all. Like, we've worked together for a year, but he works the day shift, I work the night shift. We are the ships that pass in the mid-afternoon, and, uh, but whenever I do come in and I see him there, he is just this one ashen, limp noodle of despair kind of draped over the cash register, and as you pass by, his gaze, he sort of follows you with this listless, half-lidded gaze until you pass from the zone of his depression and it's over. And that's what I know of James. Um, 
But then Mike says, but actually, after work tonight, I'm going to go out and have a beer with James and get the skinny. Uh, Do you want to come with me? And I'm like, absolutely, I want to come. And not because I care about James's story. I do not. But I do not want to go home because I am in a long-term relationship that is on the rocks. Uh, It'll be on the rocks for the next seven years. The long-term part has not happened yet. But me and the girlfriend, we moved to D.C. together. Uh, We met when she was attending a very fancy college in St. Louis, and I was the coffee shop boy that she had picked up and said, come with me to D.C., and I said, great. And when we made this mutual decision, what neither of us realized was that I have no life skills. (laughs) At all. None. So hence, like a year into living together in D.C., uh, I am working a barely minimum wage job to barely make rent, and I have one friend. I have one friend, and that's Mike, and that's all I've accomplished in a year in D.C. And other than that, the only thing I am bringing to our relationship is my raging insecurity and my terror that she is going to abandon me. <laughs> right? But now we have, love late, we have reached a kind of detente. And I figure the best way to keep that piece rolling is to not be around. So I am very happy to go to the bar uh, with Mike. And we go, and James is already there waiting for us. And he opens with a surprise because we walk in and he smiles. And then he follows that with, I guess it's probably too late to ask Evan for a letter of reference, huh? Follows with a joke. Two surprises, but these two surprises actually are, they are the precursors to an entire evening of surprises because James is not what I had thought he was at all. He is not the limp noodle of despair. Uh, In fact, he is uh, riveting. He is intelligent. He is bright. uh, He is insightful and funny. We range uh, uh, topics from his ongoing conflict with Evan to then, you know, art and books and music and pop culture and, and history and politics. And he has something interesting and vital and, and hilarious to say on every subject. And he says these things that feel familiar, but also like if you scratch the surface a little bit, you will find a world of new ideas you have never considered before. And by the end of the evening, we close the bar. By the end of the evening, I am really kind of taken with the guy, right? My face hurts from laughing. And we're walking away from the bar, walking down 16th Street, and we pass by that big Masonic lodge there. And Mike makes some crack about the Masonic lodge, at which point James turns on his heels and he says, but you don't know nothing to see here. Just a little joke, Mr. Mason people. Don't need to put our names on a list or anything. Isn't that right, Jim and Bob? And we all sort of laugh about that. And then we hit the next corner, and we kind of go our separate ways. And I, and I get home and then, you know, go to bed. And the next day, about halfway through the afternoon, my phone rings. I pick it up, and it's James. And he says, hey, man, I had a really great time hanging out with you last night. Do you want to do it again tonight? I've got nothing going on, obviously. And it was my day off, so I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And it's not in my apartment, which is always a bonus. So we did it again that night. We went out. We're having beers. I get the exact same thing, just laughing and, and just really sort of taking to one another and, and, and sort of everything he says is just great. And then about halfway through the night, he makes this 
reference to the joke he'd made the night before about the Masons. And he was like, I probably shouldn't have made that crack about the Masons. I'm probably on their list now. And I was like, you are definitely on their list now. Uh, And we we joke about that. And then, again, we close out the bar. And I am walking home. And I'm not going to lie to you. There is a lot riding on this two-day friendship for me right now. (laughs) Because... My girlfriend, she is a 23-year-old executive of an NGO, right? And so when we have a dinner party, it is all of her NGO friends, all of these smart, college-educated people, and all of their Hill staffer fiancés staring at me, wondering what I'm doing there, or if I'm lucky, staring at me and Mike, maybe. But, you know, if I can bring someone else to our social circle who is as clearly educated and smart and witty as James is, that can only redound to my favor, right? So I get home, and I crawl into bed next to my girlfriend, and I go to sleep. And then about, like, three or four in the morning, my phone rings, and I jump out of bed, and I grab it and go into the living room, and it's James. And James says, have you ever heard of the Illuminati? And I say, I have heard the word. And he says, well, the Illuminati are the secret organization that control the world's economy. And I say, will they still control the world's economy in the morning? And he says, if there's a world. And I'm like, I'm willing to take that chance. And I hang up the phone. And I go back into the bedroom. And I get in there. And my, my, my girlfriend did not wake up, so it's fine. And it's, but it's just weird that he called me with this at 3 or 4 in the morning. But he's also, he's a guy in his 20s. And guys in their 20s make terrible choices. So fine. <laughs> and I go back to bed. And the next day, uh, it's afternoon. It's time for me to go into the bookstore. And I go in for my shift. And I immediately turn right around and go back outside to have a cigarette. Because I'm a model employee. <laughs> and I'm having a cigarette. And I look down the street. And I see James coming towards me, and I, I know that Evan has not left for the day. And if Evan comes down from the office and sees James there, like, it's not going to be great. Before I can say anything, James is standing there, and James says, Hey, man, I'm really sorry I called you last night. I was, I was, I was going home from the bar, and I just... I had this weird sensation that people were following me or something. It was just... It was a weird thing, but uh, I was drunk. And I was like, it's not a big deal. We're all drunk. It's fine. Uh, But if Evan comes down and sees you hanging around the shop, God only knows what his reaction is going to be. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're you're, you're right, you're right. I'll I'll take off. I'll I'll call you later. I'll call you later. I'm like, yeah, no problem. And he goes, and he walks away, he turns the corner, and this is when the phone calls begin. At first, just calls to my cell phone. Then it's calls to the shop phone where Evan might answer. And then it's calls to my home phone where my girlfriend might answer. And it's always James. And what James wants to talk about on each of these phone calls is always the same thing. It is the global international conspiracy uh, that has become aware that he knows all about them. And so they're following him around. Uh, There are people on benches taking notes as he passes by and watching him through binoculars at the second floor of row house windows. And he uh, is calling me because they've tapped his phone, but he he wants to get advice. And I have none. (laughs) I have no advice for this. So I stop answering the phone. At which point, James starts showing up 
everywhere I go. Uh, if I go out to a bar, James is there. If I go to a record store, James is there. If I go out to dinner with my girlfriend, James is suddenly next to the table, signaling to me with his head that it's I need to go talk to him right now. And so I will go and stand in the corner of Child Harold, where he will explain to me that the black SUVs followed him to the restaurant. DC is full of black SUVs. <laughs> They've all followed him to the restaurant, and I can see over his shoulder my girlfriend staring at us, and I can see the expression on her face is like, it's like, we have been here for a year, and you have two friends, and one of them is psychotic? What am I doing with my life? And I don't know how to answer this. And that's when James starts showing up at the store. He's coming to the store. He had taken my admonishment not to come around when Evan was there, not to come around when Evan was there. And so what he does instead is he sits across the street next to the metro entrance and stares at the front of the store. I will see him out there when I go to have a cigarette and we will stare at one another and he just does that until Evan leaves and then all of a sudden there he is on the other side of the counter telling me about the black helicopters with cameras on their bellies that have followed him to the store. And and this, it is the 90s. I am 25 years old. It is the 90s. It is before Google. There are no resources. You cannot look a thing up. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't exist. In the 90s, weird shit happened. And you made it up as you went, and you were always wrong. That's how the 90s worked. But finally, after, after like two weeks of this, I finally think I'm going to get a reprieve. Because I come in one day, and Mike is there, and Mike has that expression on his face again. And he says, guess what James did? And my blood goes cold, and I'm like, what did James do? And he says, well, last night, James went down to the White House, stripped off all of his clothes, got completely naked, and tried to climb the White House gates so he could have a conversation with Bill Clinton. <laughs> and I say, that's insane. And Mike says, yeah, that's James. James is insane. And I said, why did he take up all of his clothes? Why was he naked? What was that about? And and Mike goes, oh, no. That was the one sane thing he did. Because when you're completely naked, then the Marines can see that you're not armed, and they don't just shoot you. (laughs) Instead, they do what they did with James. They drag you off the gates and haul you off to the psych ward. And I think, okay, I am off the hook because now he is in a hospital and he's going to get the help he needs and I think this because I am 25 years old and do not understand how the American healthcare system works because what actually happens after a 48 hour psych hold they boot him onto the sidewalk in a hospital Johnny no one could find his clothes So about halfway through the day, I get a phone call from Mike, and Mike's like, he's out. (laughs) He just showed up in my place. Uh, I gave him a coat and uh, some boots. Mike is six foot four, six foot eight with the afro. James is five foot six. All right, so he's got this giant coat and these boots, and he's like, and he went out the door, and I don't know where he is, but I thought you should know he's on the street. And I'm like, thanks. Thanks for the warning. Uh, And I I spend like the rest of the day kind of looking over my shoulder, like wondering what bush or shrub James is going to jump out of. And then uh, I'm at work. And it is a Friday night. 
And the shop that I worked at was kind of a, a single spot. It was kind of a hot spot. And so it is just packed to the gills with like hill staffers there to pick up books and one another. And I am just riding herd on their pheromones when suddenly James is there. And he's not on the other side of the counter. Now he's come behind the counter. And he's behind the counter with me and the register. And he's just talking at the side of my face. And he's saying, I'm pretty sure they know that I know what I know. And if they know that I know what I know, then they must also know that you know what I know. And if they know that you know what I know, then they know what you know. So you got to watch your back. And all I can think is that at any minute now, Evan's going to walk in this door, and he's going to see James behind the counter with me and the register, and he's going to fire me. I'm going to get fired, and then I'm going to have to go home and tell my girlfriend the one thing I had going on in this town I just got fired from, and then she's going to dump me. And I have, you know, like the entire year that I've been in D.C., I have felt like my own emotional and mental well-being has been hanging by a thread. Like, I feel like I am always on the precipice of some kind of, like, completely world-ending depression. And, like, and like now I feel like I am being pulled down down by a drowning man. That's what this feels like to me now. And now it feels like it's a matter of survival. It feels like it's either me or him. And I decide in this minute, it's gonna be me. (laughs) So I turn to James and I say, we should talk about this outside. And he's like, good idea. So we go outside. I give him a cigarette, take one for myself, light them both. And then I lean into James and I say the following, look, man, don't worry about me. I can take care of myself. And I can watch my own back. But you're in the heart of this thing, man. Everybody who'd want to know what you know, they're all right here in D.C. where they can watch you. This is the belly of the beast, man. You cannot be here. Is there anywhere you can go tonight outside of the city? And James says, I have friends in Richmond. Go to Richmond. Go tonight. Don't even go home. Just go right to the bus station and go to Richmond. And he's like, good idea. I'm like, I know. And he turns around and he walks away and he gets to the corner and he glances over his shoulder one time before turning the corner and disappearing into the darkness. And I know in this moment I have done the single most mercenary thing I could do. I have thrown this vulnerable, mentally ill boy to the wolves of his own madness. But it was a matter of survival. It was me or him, and I cannot afford to regret it. And it also happens, by pure coincidence, that I also did the exact right thing for James. Because apparently he did exactly what I told him to do. He went to Richmond. But the friends he had in Richmond were actually also friends of his family's. So when he showed up there and burst in the front door and went to the bathroom and locked himself in and wouldn't come out because they're spies, they called his parents. And his parents came down and took him back to Connecticut and got him the help he needed. And I did not see James again for a year. And then one day, I am walking into the Trist coffee shop, and there he is. He's sitting on a couch in the window, surrounded by people, friends, people I'd never met, I guess. And I walk in, and he sees me. We make eye contact, but there's no look of recognition on his face at all. And I don't know if he knew who I was or remembered who I was, if I was just a a shadow of past delusions that were now gone for him. And also in that year, a lot of my life had changed. I had gotten a second job at the Phillips Collection, and I had started taking acting classes at the 
conservatory, the studio theater. And I had started making friends at those places. And I started making friends with my other co-workers at the bookstore as well. I had sort of gotten myself out of my own isolation. And things were better with the girl. And I would, it's too neat to be like, and after that happened, after James lost his mind, I thought I need to get my shit together. That wasn't quite that simple. But I do think that what happened with James was one of the wake-up calls that made me have to realize that my inability to take care of my relationship, my inability to take care of the situations I found myself in, all of that came back to my inability to take care of myself. But taking care of myself was something I couldn't do on my own. I needed to get out of myself. I needed to find friends. I needed to find a community. And I had done that in the intervening year. But I don't tell any of that to James. I don't say anything to James. I just return him that same lack of recognition, and I get my coffee, and I leave. And as I am walking past on the sidewalk, walking past that window where James is sitting with his friends, now talking to them, now not even acknowledging me, as I walk away, from, I wish James, from a very safe distance, I wish him wellness, I wish him health and sanity and safety, and I wish him better friends than the one he found in me. Thank you. So, I'm walking down the street, and, uh, there's a medium amount of people and I see this adorable gentleman older than me shorter than me looking at me and approaching me he's got these bottle cap glasses on but I remember his eyes to be small and like almost turtle-esque and he seems to very much want to tell me something. And so I'm like, oh, hello, sir. And he's like, meh. I'm like, oh, and I think, well, okay. He's maybe needs a minute. He's like, meh, meh. And he, you know, is putting his, kind of reaching out for my arm. And I'm like, all right, you know. I'm listening, uh-huh, you can tell me, and me and ma, me and ma, me and ma, I'm like, oh shit, like this guy's having a hard time getting it out, he must have a stutter, you know, so I'm like, you know, no, and I just buckle down, and I was raised to have very good manners, my parents are immigrants, they taught me, you know, like, especially to your elders, to always be polite and patient and just accommodating. So I'm like, yes, tell me. It's like, me and ma, ma, me and ma. And I'm like, maybe he's in trouble. Jesus Christ. Like, oh, right, ma, yeah, you and your, you and your, me and ma, me and ma, me and my friend. Me and my fam. I'm like, all right, we're getting somewhere. I got me and my fam. He's probably gonna say me and my family. I'm like, uh huh. Okay, me and my fam. Me and my, me and my, me and my fam. Me 
Uh-huh, yes, sir, yes. To you and your fam, you and your family. Me and my family. Like, like, I'm just, like, starting to go nuts. Like, I'm like, oh, God, just fucking, oh, my God, dude. Me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my, me and my family. Oh, me and my fam. Oh, just fucking say it. Me and my friend. Me and my friend. Me and my. Oh, and I'm like in my head. I'm just like, just fucking say it. And then, I wake up and I'm like, oh shit. I was sleeping. And I like look over and my my sweetheart is snoring next to me. He's like. laughing. I'm just like, oh God. His snore got into my dream and was the voice of the man. Ugh, one of the best dream interpretations I've ever had. Real life into sleep. Uh, back in 2007, I used to live in Hell's Kitchen, and I used to work on, on, at this bar on 8th Avenue and 46th Street, and I used to be a cocktail waitress. And one Friday afternoon, when I came to work, as I walk in, I see my coworker, Brian, sitting in a corner with a big suitcase and just looking kind of strange. So as I approach him, I say, hey, Brian, how are you? How is your day? And that's when I noticed that Brian looks really disheveled. He has scratches all over his arms, and he has a big bruise on his right cheek, and he just really looks out of it. So he looks at me, and he says, I just had the worst day of my life. And I say, what happened? And he's like, you know what? I don't really want to talk about it. I'm still very upset, and this is just a little bit too much to get into right now. So eventually, he ended up telling me what happened. And what happened was <laughs> he got into a fight uh, with his roommate. And he basically kicked him out of the apartment, stole some of his stuff, stole his money. And right now, he didn't have a place to go. He didn't know anyone in the city. And he didn't know what to do next. I feel sorry for Brian, even though I didn't know him that well, but I could relate to that situation of being all by myself in a big city and not having any friends, any family, because I just came probably like about two years prior to that from Poland, and I had just two suitcases and $1,000 in my pocket, and if something like that happened to me, I would be lost and terrified. So I told Brian, look, if you want, there is a couch in my apartment, you're more than welcome to crash on it, and it's not going to be a problem. My roommates and I were used to having people sleeping there all the time, and the couch is currently available, so if you want, you can, you can crash on it, and, and hopefully we'll figure something out. So that's what we did. When we finished the shift, we went to my place, and I set him up on the couch, and then I just went to sleep. So when I woke up in the morning, Brian wasn't there. He just left a thank you note, and which says, thank you, I'll see you later. So that was it. So next day, Saturday, as I get to work, it's right away a super busy night. The place was constantly overcrowded, understaffed, and super loud. And I'm just running back and forth between the bar and the dance floor, not only serving the drinks, but also making the drinks. And it's just a busy, busy, busy night. 
so at some point, like as I'm making another vodka cranberry, I look to my left and I see the owner of the place standing by the door and he's talking with two guys, both of them wearing suits and one of them holding a briefcase. And they definitely stand out amongst that crowd that we used to get there. Like, you know, Hell's Kitchen in 2007 was still pretty rough. So the guys were like, both of them were just totally out of place there. So I kind of like laughed at it a little bit, but I had my drinks ready and I was ready to serve them. So I ran back on the dance floor to serve them. So as I come back, the owner of the place taps me on the shoulder and he says, they want to talk to you. And he points at those two guys. I was like, come on, I, I have no time for this. It's like, I'm the only waitress on the floor tonight. I don't have time for that. And he says, they're from FBI. What? And he said, they're from FBI. You need to talk to them. This is the first time during that night that I actually stop. And I'm not sure if I'll be able to move again because I suddenly feel like I've been paralyzed. And I have this huge wave of heat coming from the bottom of my stomach through my chest, going to my throat and I like, feel my throat tightening up almost as much as the tightening of that right now, <laughs> telling this story on the stage. And I'm standing there and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and I know he's saying something, but I can't really hear it because the place suddenly gets quiet. Like all the noises get muffled and, and I'm just standing there with my mind blank. Main thought that's going through my head is some mixture of shit. What the fuck? I can't believe this. So I guess I have to backtrack a little bit here and tell you my, why my reaction over there happened the way it did. So I was an illegal immigrant in this country. I came two years prior, as I say, um, with a suitcase, uh, two suitcases, $1,000. And yeah, I fell in love with a comedian. Uh, <laughs> And um, yeah, I decided to overstay my, my visa. And, and here I was two years later, now I'm currently being an uh, illegal immigrant. And yeah, and, and, and this is what was happening. And I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that it would happen to me, not in this place, in the middle of the dance floor, I'm being busted and being kicked out of the country. So yeah, I'm like standing there and then I just feel like, I've been taken out of there. I'm just watching the situation as it's happening, that it's really not happening to me. But then, yeah, I mean, we went down to the basement where the office was, and the FBI guys were there already. So they introduced themselves, and they definitely had that dynamic of the good, funny guy and the bad, more serious guy. <laughs> uh, so we sat at the table, and the bad guy, let's call him bad guy, did most of the talking. And so he asked me, what's my name? I said, what's my name? What's your address? I told him my address. And then he asked me, what do you know about Brian? And I'm like, Brian, uh, Brian, the, the, the coworker? He's like, yeah. So I said, well, he's the coworker. Like, we work together. And as I'm answering that question, I was like, why are they asking me about Brian? Like, what does Brian have to do with that? And that's when it hits me that Brian actually was the one who reported me to the officials. And as I'm sitting there, I find myself getting so angry. Like angry with Brian for being such a jerk or dick, to make it clear. Uh, and, and just doing something like that after I've been nice to him, after I was trying to help him but mainly angry with myself for being like so stupid and naive and just telling everyone and their mother about my legal situation in this country. <laughs> so like all of my coworkers, my friends, my neighbors, 
everyone knew that I was looking for a guy to get married to get my green card. And I thought, I thought that this is just a, like a good networking. And, <laughs> and that the more people knew about my story, about my story, like I'm trying to get married, the more people would, you know, there would be more opportunities. So here I was, all of it came back biting me in the ass. You know, I was actually thinking that maybe Brian could marry me. Like, you know, maybe he knows someone to marry me. And then here we are, he just reported me to the official. And I was just, I was just devastated. So I'm sitting there and I, I'm like on the verge of starting to cry. And they keep asking me questions. And at some point, like after a few questions, like how, what did you do on, on uh, Friday night? Like, wh- what do you know about Brian? Blah, blah blah. So that's when I realized there's like a lot of questions about Brian. <laughs> and that's when I start thinking, like, I don't think this is really about me. I think maybe this is about Brian. <laughs> so I look at the, you know, the, the good, approachable guy, and I say, I, and at that point, actually, I started crying because there were just all these emotions and feelings. And I say, can you tell me what this is all about? And he looks at me with this like smile on his face. He's like, don't cry, you'll be fine. And I'm like thinking, yeah, it's, it's easy for you to say. Uh, but anyway, like what I find out next is that Brian is actually not Brian. His name is Clarence. And Clarence slash Brian is a registered sex offender in two states. And Brian just came from Florida where he raped a woman and he stole her car. So while in New York, Brian was... Uh, staying at this, you know, city hotel in Times Square. And on Thursday night, Brian brought in a girl that he met on Craigslist. And he ended up raping her, strangling her, wrapping her body up in a plastic bag, and stuffing it under the bed. And then in the morning, he checked out, he came to work on Friday afternoon, and that's when I met him, and that's when I took him home. (laughs) So I'm sitting there... And I'm like processing this whole information. And I'm like, oh my God. I just feel this sense of relief. Like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> thank God this is not about me. <laughs> this is about something else. It's, it's not me. Like, oh my God. I can go home. I can sleep in my own bed. I can wake up tomorrow and continue my American dream. <laughs> So yeah, uh, it took me probably another four weeks to really like process that information, to really like feel what actually happened. But that night, I was actually walking home and I felt like I was on the cloud nine. And I was actually humming a song and, and then just, you know, being super happy. So when I got home, my roommates were up actually, because we, all of us, we used to work night shifts. And they, all of us actually we used to be illegal, same situation. I told them what happened. The first question was like, oh my God, were there any body parts in that suitcase that he had? So I was like, no, there was no body parts. It's, we're fine, we're good. And, but then they were just like, just as happy as I was. And we actually toasted to it, like, you know, cheers to not being busted by, you know, uh, officials. I mean, it's like, life is good. So yeah, uh, my coworkers, on the other hand, started fetishizing this whole thing about Brian. One of them actually printed out his picture from New York Post or Daily News or like one of those, and he framed it and he put it behind the bar. Like, and then we were just telling everyone that story. <laughs> but then, like probably as I say, four weeks, maybe five weeks after that, 
I started having flashback of what happened. I have started having flashbacks of my interactions with Brian, Clarence, and um, you know, and I just remember like I remember that night we were sitting on the couch and how he was like taking off the scabs from those scratches and I just remember that look on his face and now all of it was just like coming back to me and then I was thinking about this poor woman who must have fought so hard it was just um, really like again didn't happen those feelings didn't happen until like four or five weeks after that so years later like in the retrospect I was wondering like were we really like such a bad heartless people to like just you know, take so carelessly uh, someone dying, somebody being murdered by some psycho. But now I like to think that I'll blame it on working the night shift, living in Hell's Kitchen, drinking too much, and doing too much cocaine. Thank you. This is Risk. This is television behind me now, going back to 1977. And we just heard from Monica Novak. Before that, that little crazy anecdote called Me and My Fam (laughs) by Alexandra. Uh, Oh my gosh, I always struggle with her last name. Alexandra Anagnostopoulos. Don't forget that if you would like to pitch us a short anecdote like that, round about in the three or four minute range, just write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. And also don't forget, we're currently looking for scary stories of any length for our upcoming Halloween episode. You can also write directly to me about that. Okay, let us get to our final two stories of the episode this week. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Richard Cardillo, who's one of everyone's favorite storytellers from the New York City storytelling scene. His story was recorded at one of our live streams, our online shows. But before that, a little story from me that was done in the radio style, edited by Jeff Barr. Here I am now with a story we call Boys in the Attic.
In the first few months of the sixth grade, shit got real. In history class, we saw documentaries about the Holocaust and Hiroshima. I mean, those were dark days. That was a room full of 11-year-olds with their jaws just hanging open. Outside of class time, I was reading The Exorcist, partly because my mom had told me, Kevin, if there's one book you should never read, it's The Exorcist. And on the playground, where kids used to be, you know, competitive or idiotic, now they were getting mean. Junior high mean. Now, one of my best friends then was this sunny, blonde-haired kid named Donnie. Some of my classmates thought Donnie was a quote-unquote nerd, which was one of the worst things you could be called in 1981. It was partly because he wore horned-rimmed glasses like Buddy Holly, which are cool again, but not then. And I guess kids thought he was too nice? You know, like in a in a, like a Ned Flandersy kind of way. Anyway, I had a huge secret at that time. I had a crush on Donnie. When he would see me, he would say, "Hey, Kev." He was the first friend I had who called me Kev rather than Kevin which I took to mean, like, I don't know, maybe he liked me too, you know? Because, I mean, that's some pretty hardcore intimacy right there. <laughs> but another thing was, I absolutely loved looking at Donnie's butt. I had a hard time not looking at Donnie's butt. You know, sometimes I'd say to him, Hey, Donnie, wouldn't it be hilarious if you mooned me? Which, of course, is not hilarious to me. It is, in fact, the way to my heart. But Donnie thought it was hilarious, and he would do it. And then I'd just make sure my hands were blocking his view of the crotch area of my jeans, and I'd laugh and laugh. Now, my other best friend around about that time was this fella named Dave, and he was pretty much the polar opposite. He was the lovable grouch. He had this intense stare and a great gift for sarcasm. I remember him pointing to the nuns as they were ordering us to line up in a single file line, and the line was getting all confused on the playground, and he said, look at this, Kevin. It's the blind leading the blind. Everyone knew that Dave had this dark side to him. I mean, he was the guy who lent me his copy of The Exorcist. But because Donnie was so sunny and Dave was so dark, the two were like oil and water. You know, it was hard to be friends with both. Well... One day on the playground, I noticed a bunch of kids kind of clustered in a huddle. And I walked right up and I said, what's going on? Well, someone had a trapper keeper notebook, you know, and people were passing it around to add their names to a sheet of loose leaf. 
And Beverly Winarski said to me, you want to add your name to the list, Kevin? It's the I Hate Don Club. Well, sure enough, they hand this to me. And I can see that at the top of this list of over 30 names in huge capital letters were the words, the I Hate Don Club. And I knew that handwriting right away. It was Dave's. Well, I couldn't concentrate in math class that day. I mean, I couldn't concentrate in math class any day, but that day I was shaking in my seat. How could Dave be so cruel? I mean, he'd clearly created this club so Don would find out that the whole school was hating on him. And for what? Being a little nerdy? Having rockabilly eyewear? I was hurting for my friend. And that's when I got the idea to do something that was, and still is, completely unlike me. I decided to challenge Dave to a fist fight. Now... I didn't know anything about fighting. I had no reason to think I'd win. But into great crisis steps a great man. So right there at my desk, I folded up a note and motioned for the three kids in front of me to pass it on to Dave. It said, you're being a real jerk about Donnie. Meet me behind the quick shop after school. We'll settle this with our fists. I'd heard that line on The Incredible Hulk. Well, Dave never even turned around. He just passed a note right back to me saying, you're on. But then I had two more classes to sit through and think about what I'd done. There were two things I was most afraid of. One, getting punched by Dave, and two, punching Dave. I punched my little sister once and her tooth turned black. I never felt more awful. In fact, she's a therapist now, and she still asks if I've processed how awful that was of me to do. Anyway, sitting there in those classes, I kept thinking, God, how might this go? But all the scenarios seemed like worst-case scenarios. Then I thought, look, I really want to back out of this fight, but you know who else might want to back out of this fight? Dave. Neither of us was the fighting kind. We were the kind of kids who spent our spare time reading The Exorcist. So, in social studies, I came up with a new plan. You see, the quick shop was the little grocery mart across the street from our school, and kids sometimes snuck to the parking lot behind it to smoke cigarettes or do experiments with Coca-Cola and Pop Rocks. But I lived up on a hill a little over one block away. And from my attic window back at home, I could spy on kids goofing off in the lot behind the quick shop. So what if I didn't show up for the fight, but did reconnaissance spying on the war zone from my attic to see if Dave did show up? Then if he did, that's when I could decide whether I wanted to run there and make up some excuse for being late or not. It was a confident plan for waffling.
So after school, I ran, ran, ran like the wind to get home and up to the attic window. I grabbed my dad's opera glasses, which he could never find when he went to the opera because his kids were always pulling crap like this. And there in the lot behind the quick shop was nothing. No one. For 10 minutes, 15, 20, a whole half hour. Dave never showed up. He chickened out. Of course, I did too, but he didn't know that. So I could say I won. The next morning in homeroom, I walked right up to Dave and said, You never showed up. He said, What? (laughs) No, you never showed up. I said, Um, no. You never showed up. But it quickly became apparent that neither of us could think how to actually prove what we were claiming. And so, by the end of the day, we seemed to have silently arrived at the same plan of action, which was pretending it had never happened. Fortunately, the I Hate Dawn Club was soon forgotten as well. And in the years that followed, even Donnie and Dave started getting along. Although Donnie did become a lot more interested in the opposite gender and a lot less interested in mooning me. Well, a couple of years ago, I had drinks with my old friend Dave. I said, do you remember in the sixth grade, I challenged you to a fist fight? What the hell happened there? He said, oh man, do I remember. You know, I did not want to show up for that fight. But then I remember in social studies class, I got an idea. I thought, wait a minute. Right next door to Kevin Allison's house is my friend James Silver's house. And I knew that his family had an attic. And from that window was a perfect view down the hill to the lot behind the quick shop. So after school, James and I ran back there and were looking through his dad's binoculars to see if you showed up. And then if you did, that's when I could decide if I really wanted to show up too. Turns out, both of us were sheltering in place within a stone's throw of each other, up in attic windows, maybe 80 feet apart looking through binoculars at an empty parking lot about a block away. And for both of us, that was our first and only fist fight. So here from the Catskills, let's please welcome Richard Cardillo. Thank you all. Thanks so much to Kevin and everybody at risk for helping keep us sane through all of this lunacy. I first met Peter at the car wash. Now, this particular car wash isn't exactly a place you take your Subaru for a waxing. The car wash was the nickname for the back room of a really seedy, sleazy bar in New York called The Spike. I had recently left 14 years in a monastery as a celibate monk trying to pray away my gay, and I couldn't do it, so I left. 
And that's why I was in that back room. I found Pete, Pete found me, and we had a ball in there. I was going at it just like a monk who had a vow of celibacy for 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> we finish in the back room. We go to the bar. Pete's buying me beer after beer. He invites me back to his place, and I go. And it was wonderful. It was everything I wanted and more. And within four short months... Pete and I started our relationship of 18 wonderful years together. It was a marvel. Pete was this force of nature. He had social activism inside of him like no one I knew. He was born and raised in Selma, Alabama, right at the cusp of the civil rights movement. So he had activism coursing through his veins. And he protests for anything. No nukes, better health care for people, uh, better wages for people. He was out there and he dragged me along to every one of those protests. And I'd be at his side and I loved it. At the end of those protests, he'd invite some of his colleagues, his compadres, back to our apartment for a meal. And the centerpiece of every one of those meals was my bread. One of the things I left the monastery with was this ability to make bread and it became my passion. I would make bread for everything and Pete wanted to instill that and keep that going. So he had my bread be the center of every one of the meals that we had together. It was great. I was going at it making bread for him. He was going at it trying to change the world the best he can. About a year into our relationship, Pete developed this real bad case of pneumonia in the middle of the winter. He got over it. Then he started getting neuropathy in both his legs. Then his eyesight started failing. And we kind of saw the handwriting on the wall. Pete had never gotten tested for HIV AIDS. So we both went together. And sure enough, he tested positive for HIV AIDS. He fought it like a trooper. The doctor got his health back as best as he could. And he joined another protest group, those wonderful warriors from ACT UP. And we were on the streets together, militant as can be. And after every one of those marches, the ACT UP members came back to our apartment and there was more bread. Pete even wanted to make hospitality the center of our relationship. So once a week, he insisted on inviting homeless people from the Lower East Side where we lived over to our house for a meal with that bread. Very shortly after that, one other horrible thing started happening. Pete's mental health started deteriorating. He had this horrible, horrible opportunistic infection that was called toxoplasmosis. It affects lesions and areas of the brain dealing with mood. And he just would sink into these deep, deep, dark depressions. And he would cycle in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And I saw this love of my life, this spark, this person who gave energy to everybody just fading away. And I didn't know how to go on with that. In August of 2012, Pete had just gotten out from spending five months committed to a state psychiatric hospital. He came home. I thought he was getting better. He was going every day to day treatments. And I went to work on one particular day. I gave him this prolonged kiss goodbye told him I'd be cooking that night for dinner, and went off to work. And about noon, I get this phone call on my cell phone, and it's Pete. 
and I hear all of this traffic and wind. And I said, Pete, where the fuck are you? And he said, listen, Richard, I just wanted to call, let you know how much I love you, and I'll see you tonight. And he hung up. I didn't feel good about that phone call. So much so that I just left work and went home to wait for him. And about three to four hours after that, two police officers were at my front door and they gave me the really ugly news that Pete had jumped from the George Washington Bridge, that they had recovered his body, and I had to go with them to identify the body. And I just collapsed. When Pete died, a big chunk of me died with him. I just closed down. I stopped going to work. I stopped talking to family and friends. I became a hermit in my own house. It was really my first taste of what we're going through now with social distancing. I just didn't want anybody in my life. About six months after that, on this frigid, cold December morning, I woke up to make some food and I realized I had no food in the house. But I had flour, water, salt, and yeast. So I did what I knew how to do. I made bread. And old habits die hard. I made a lot of bread. I made eight baguettes. And I ripped the end off of one of them, ate it, and immediately felt really, really stupid. The rest of these loaves were just going to go sour and go stale. And I had nobody to share it with. The next morning, I forced myself to put on my winter coat and my boots, and I trudged the eight blocks to the Bowery Mission to just donate this bread to homeless men. I opened the door to this center, and the guy at the front desk starts bellowing at me, hold on, no way, Department of Health rules, we can't accept food donations from anybody. So I left there feeling even more stupid. And I went to the park on Christie and Stanton to sit on a park bench in the snow and just have a real good crying jag. But I stopped and I turned around and I realized four men from the Bowery Mission had followed me into the park. Whew. One of the men circles me, looks me straight in the eye and points. And he simply asked, you got bread? <laughs> I opened the bag of baguettes, took out the bread, broke it, gave it to each of the men, and they devoured it. Not a word was spoken. Not a thank you. Nothing. They're finishing up. I'm putting the bag away. And I get up to go. And that same man came up to me, pointed to me again, and said, you're going to be back next week? And I said, I would try. The following Sunday, I showed up with eight loaves of sourdough bread, and the guys were already waiting for me. And this time, there was an awful lot more talking and laughing and sharing. They were connecting with their bread memories. One guy said, I remember living down south, and my grandma would make this cornbread in a skillet in the oven. I said, well, I make that kind of cornbread in a skillet. I'll make that for you next week. And another guy said, I remember when I was on the Lower East Side, I'd run home for Sabbath, and I'd rip a piece of the challah and get it before anybody else. I said, well, I make challah. I'll make you some challah bread. In the ensuing months, there were an awful lot more requests for bread and an awful lot more fun.
My moniker became Breadman, and I'd be a block away from that park, and I'd hear that chant go up, Yo, Breadman, what you got? And I'd hold it up and say, it's Chocolate Bobka Week. <laughs> Yo, Breadman, what you got? Today's Pumpernickel Day. And we'd eat, and we'd commiserate, and we'd talk about the world. They got to know me, and I got to know them very, very well. And there was this change in me. I became lighter. I went back to work. I started laughing again. I entered back into the world, and I really had nobody to thank for that but these men who made me see that I am one of many. On this beautiful, clear, blue sky May morning, I go into the park, and I hear, Yo, Breadman, what you got? I hold up the satchel, and I said, A whole lot of ciabatta. <laughs> one guy said, Ah, shit. I had a hankering for your focaccia bread. <laughs> and we all started laughing. Another guy said, not I. I've become partial to your country pond rustique. And we howled even louder with that one. Another guy bellows out, yo, bread man, you performed a miracle. You converted these crack addicts into connoisseurs. <laughs> and we just died on the ground laughing. It was crazy. That was not a miracle. There was a miracle that did happen, though. It was the multiplication of the loaves. I wasn't making more bread. They were sharing it out more with more people. And I still say the bigger miracle was the miracle inside of me. I had become one of... Or, team now, one of many, and it made me think back of how Pete wanted to change the world and wanted to change minds. And I stopped and I said, my mind was changed, now I can help others to change the world. And I'm pretty sure Pete would have loved it. <laughs> Thank you. Sad eyed misinterpreted, hung up child of clay. So the drunken poet's pretty words didn't help you find your way. Was it your mistake for thinking he was born before his time? Is for thinking he might save you with his flimsy rhyme. Teetotal Tommy took the total tea. Black cat's backing up a big old tree. Tick tock's taking out a tune on time. Last words looking for a line to rhyme. Saw fishes swimming in the sea, saw sea, but me.
is all for the best of risk number 19. This is Mickey Newberry behind me now, and we just heard from Richard Cardillo, who you can find on Instagram at Richard Cardillo. Folks, don't forget we are looking for pitches from people with scary stories for our Halloween episode this year. These could be stories about paranormal incidents, nightmares, bad drug trips, uh, violent incidents, uh, near-death experiences, injuries, just anything on the scarier side, outdoor adventures gone wrong, you name it. You could reach right out to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com or you could go to our submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions, which is all kinds of tips on how to pitch us and uh, some very, very helpful stuff there. On the live shows section of risk-show.com, it's technically at risk-show.com slash tour. You can find where our next live stream shows, when they're happening. Uh, there's September 10th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And there's another one on September 26th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 7 p.m. Pacific. So come see our next live stream shows. They're fantastic. And don't forget to check the notes, the episode notes on your podcast player for all the links to the ways to be engaged with us. It lists there how you can support Risk on Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. How you can make a one-time donation to Risk at paypal.me slash risk show. How you can get the Risk book at theriskbook.com. How you can take our storytelling classes. There are so many opportunities to learn about storytelling in various ways. In one-on-one sessions, in group sessions, in videos that you can download and watch in your own time. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Coming up very soon, we have a two-day level two storytelling workshop with Gail Thomas, who you heard on the podcast recently. That's October 3rd and October 4th. On September 16th, a one-hour masterclass called Bringing Stories to Life with Scenic Detail with Brad Lawrence. There's just a ton of offerings to click through and check out at thestorystudio.org. And in the episode notes, you'll also find links for how you can connect with me. You can get personalized videos made by me at cameo.com slash thekevinallison, how you can hire me as your own storytelling coach at kevinallison.com, how you can text with me about risk and storytelling at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. And then, of course, there are all the ways to reach us on social media. We're at risk show on all the socials. We have a discussion group on Facebook called the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group. We have a subreddit called Risk Podcast, and I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. 
take a risk. Me and my fam. 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 Me